Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to John chapter 1 this morning. And, uh, you know, we just finished, beloved, one of the greatest chapters in Scripture in Romans 8, right? One of the most wonderfully written compositions of all of the blessings of salvation. And so this morning, as we're in the Christmas season, we're going to turn to yet another of one of those greatest chapters in Scripture. John chapter 1. Many times, and I don't know if you've noticed this, maybe you have, but many times when we will finish one of the epistles, what we'll do then after we study an epistle is go back to a gospel and study a gospel and look again afresh and anew at the life of Jesus Christ. It's sort of a pattern that we've established, you know, over the, the, the ministry here in the last 17 years or so, um, and for good reason. Here's why. When we read And we study the remarkable and the wondrous, for instance, doctrines of redemption in Romans chapter 8, right? Rather than simply seeing those doctrines as as merely a list of religious truths that we adhere to, a list of, of religious facts that we hold to be true, we need to be reminded that these truths are grounded in a person, that they're tied to a person, That they're not just, you know, truths out there disconnected from anything, but that they are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his life and to his death, to his works, to his message, to him personally, right? And so these doctrinal truths that we love, these doctrinal truths in which we delight, they need to be intentionally anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? How do we intentionally anchor these doctrines that we love to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the way that we do that, beloved, is by setting our hearts and our minds to to glorify the, the, the person of the one who took on human flesh, who came into this darkened world, who shined the light of God's glory and his grace and his truth, this one who came to make children of wrath, sons and daughters of God. We need to set our minds to magnifying and exalting the eternal son of God made flesh right? And there's no greater place to witness the convergence of all of these things about Christ than in this magnificent prologue to the gospel of John. These 18 verses are profound. They are remarkable. They are, when you think about them, when you explore them, when you dig down into them, beloved, they are Christ-exalting, they're awe-inspiring, they are thought-provoking, And they are worship-inflaming to everyone that has ears to hear and heart to believe it. These are great, great words. And you know, it's actually perfect timing that we would finish up Romans 8 last week and then be able now to transition into John 1 for the next three weeks. I couldn't have planned this if I had tried it. To finish Romans 8, the first eight chapters of Romans, and then have these few weeks now to meditate on the glory of Christ. So let's stand together. I want to read through the entirety of this prologue. I want to read all the way through verse 18. And then we're going to pray, and then we'll dig into this text together this morning. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Praise God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your entire Bible is profound. The Word of God is profound. It is remarkable. It is so high. Lord, apart from you opening our eyes and and, and opening our, our minds and our hearts to understand the truth, Father, we would remain forever in the dark. We need you to open up the truth of your Word to us and It's especially true when we consider a text that we're looking at, like we're looking at today. Lord, to consider the reality of the Word, what that means, the second member of the Trinity, to to think about what it means that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Lord, human minds can't make sense of that. It's only by the illumination of your Holy Spirit that we can I'm praying, Lord God, that you would meet with us. And I'm praying, Lord God, that you would use me as an instrument in your hands. I pray, Lord God, that you would give me grace, that my voice would last throughout this sermon. I pray that, Father God, you would give grace to the hearers to have to listen to my voice like this. But I pray in the midst of it all, Father, your truth would come through loud and clear. And that we would be amazed at the things that we consider this morning. And that, Lord, we would be driven to, to awe and wonder and worship Father God, greater than we've ever known. I so thank you, Lord God, that you have saved for yourself a people, that you have done it according to your eternal covenant, that, Lord God, that what you have planned in eternity will come to pass in time, and, Lord, we don't have to be concerned or fearful that that will take place. Lord, your power is is beyond... um, it's, It's beyond conceiving. Lord God, your 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 will... Your will cannot be interdicted. You, Lord God, do all that belongs to your heart to do. And so for that, we're grateful. Open up your word to us this morning. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me a spokesman on your behalf, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, I do apologize for my voice. I know it's hard to listen to me sometimes. It's probably harder now. Anyway, hopefully this will last one week. Or maybe I'll sound like the local football coach for the rest of my life. Who knows? Here we go. One of the things I really love about John's prologue, you know, I I, I love, look, I I, I know, I know that I've kind of wavered before in the past. The truth is, unapologetically, I can say John's gospel is my favorite. It's my favorite for this reason. It really is. 
it's because it takes us out of the realm of that with which we're comfortable, right? Things that we can touch and see and handle, right? And unlike Matthew and Mark, or I'm sorry, Matthew and Luke, John's prologue, his gospel begins not with the story of the Lord's incarnation and his miraculous conception in the womb of Mary or his birth in Bethlehem. But instead, John takes us back beyond the very beginning of human history, as if to say this, if you really want to understand the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you really are going to understand the wonder, the awe with which he ought to be regarded, if you're going to have a real conception of the glory and the purpose of the incarnation, you've got to go back. You've got to go back beyond Bethlehem. You've got to go back beyond an angel visiting Mary. You've got to go back beyond there was anything that ever existed. You need to go back to the beginning. To the beginning of the beginnings. Before the beginning. You need to go back to when all there was was God. So I want us to do that. Look with me again at this at verses 1 and 2, what John says here, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John takes us back, back in time beyond Bethlehem and beyond Nazareth, back beyond where he's conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin, beyond the beginning of time itself, before creation, before human existence, before even angels proclaimed the wonders of God into eternity to when God is and there's nothing else. And he gives us a glimpse of this glorious person whom he describes to us as the Word. The Word. I think the first question we ask, of course, is this. Like, why did John choose to use... I mean, obviously, we know he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But why does he choose to use the word, word? Why does he call Jesus Christ the word? What does he mean when he calls Christ the word? It's the Greek word logos, right? Or logos, potato, potato. You can pronounce it however you want to. But it's that Greek word logos. John defines the second person of the Godhead in such a way by the use of this word logos that both the Jews and the Greeks, who were the original readers of this gospel, could have an understanding of what he was saying. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Jews' perspective, or their perception of God's Word, if you trace it throughout the Old Testament, their perception of God's Word was, was as... They thought of God's Word as, the, as God's action and God's presence. They thought of God's word as his, in personal, in particular terms, as God breaking into time and space, breaking into human history with unparalleled power and authority. For instance, we read in Psalm 33 and verse 6, that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. We read of the Word of God coming to 
Men like Abram and Samuel and Nathan and Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the like. And on and on it goes. Breaking in to human existence in a miraculous and in a powerful way. We hear the, re- the word referred to, you know, as the redemptive power of God. Psalm 107 verse 20. He sent out his word and he healed them and he delivered them from destruction. The psalmist pictured the word as being sent out by God and running throughout the earth. And Psalm 147 saying this, this, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. God's word goes and it accomplishes all of God's purpose, right? Isaiah writes, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And it shall succeed in the thing for which I have sent it. The Jews had this view. This view of of the word as being redemptive and creative and, and powerful as the very presence of the action of God breaking into the world. They spoke of the word in personal terms. Greeks, on the other hand, were philosophers by nature, right? They were thinkers. They were debaters. They were guys that could sit all day talking about something and never get bored, right? They were these guys that would create these philosophies and from human reasoning. And one of the things that they believed, you know, one of the things that they held to was that The creation of the world and the ordering of all of life and the immortality of the human soul, all of these things were made by this this unapproachable, impersonal thing known as the Logos, the Word. By this invisible and intelligent force behind all that we see in this world. To the Greeks, the Word was, was, was the shaping and the ordering and the directing principle in the universe. It was impersonal and unapproachable. It was just somewhere out there in the cosmos, but we know it exists. That was the Greek perspective. And so when John uses the word logos to describe the Lord Jesus Christ as the Word, He's saying, in essence, to the Jews, this creative power, this redemptive power, this purposeful power, the presence and the action of God breaking into the world, the mind of God that you've acknowledged, you know, throughout history, the Word of God, that Word is a person. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Greeks, he was saying, that intelligent force that, that impersonal, intelligent force behind everything that gives order to all things, that creative power of God's mind. It's not just some impersonal force out there. It's not just some thingamabob out there in the cosmos. The word's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. He's a person. And rather than philosophizing or surmising things about him, here's what you need to know. Number one, you need to know he's eternal. John writes, in the beginning was the Word. Right? The similarity to the text of Genesis is deliberate, isn't it? Right? It's deliberate. In the beginning of beginnings, before beginnings even began, the Word was. He's eternal. He's always been. In fact, what we need to see that you can't see in the English, and I wish it had actually been translated this way, is that the Word was, in Greek, is a durative imperfect. 
And what that means is it reaches back indefinitely, indefinitely before the very instant of the beginning. And so the way that you could actually translate these words is this, is that in the beginning was continuing the word. In the beginning, whenever you want to mark that beginning, was continuing the word. Before the beginning of time, he was there. He's always been there. He never came into existence. He has always been continuing. John is saying, if you really want to understand who Jesus is, if you really want to grasp something of the glory of Jesus Christ, to understand the wonder that Jesus Christ would come into this earth in human flesh, you've got to go back before the moment when matter was formed and particles came together and atoms and, mole- and, and, and molecules and neutrons and subatomic particles and all those forces came into existence. You need to go back before creatures existed. You got to go back before angelic beings were created. That's where you've got to start. Because he's uncreated. He's eternal. Because at the very moment when this creation was brought into being, he had already been. He already was. He already existed. He never came into existence. He always was. The word always was. The word belongs to a realm where time doesn't matter. The word belongs to a realm where time does not matter. He didn't have a beginning. He will have no end. He is eternal. And when you think about Christ, that's where you've got to begin. But moreover, in the beginning, the word was with God. And this is a much deeper phrase than it it appears on the surface. I've said this to you before when I've preached this text. This is not, listen, it's not that the word was with God, like you're in a room with your pet dog, your pet cat, or your parakeet. To say that the word was with God It means that from all of eternity, the word has enjoyed face-to-face communion with God. That's the meaning of the phrase, the word was with God, prostontheon. The word was face-to-face with God, prostontheon, face-to-face. Now, why is that statement important? Here's why. That phrase, prostontheon, describes the most intimate relationship of communication and communion and fellowship that can, po- that can be possible. John is saying that the word was not just merely an idea or a thought or a philosophical principle, but he's a real and a distinct person who lived with God. And moreover, God and the word, they took counsel together. They delighted in one another. They planned together. They rejoiced together. They were of one heart and one mind together. That's the idea here. The relationship between God and the Word, between God the Father and God the Son has always been a relationship of infinite love and infinite pleasure of unimaginable blessing and joy and satisfaction. Before creation, in the beginning, when the Word was with God, we need to understand that there was absolutely no emptiness in their relationship that needed to be filled. There was no longing for that one thing that would make them complete. There was no pining, you know, for that one thing, whatever it may be, that would give them satisfaction and purpose. Prostontheon, God and the Word were fully satisfied. 
And they were in a relationship of infinite love and infinite pleasure and absolute satisfaction. And the reason that's true is because the Word is God. Who could have the fullness of intimacy and relationship with God except Him who is God? Who could know God perfectly and exhaustively except Him who is God? A more resounding, a more unmistakable declaration of the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is impossible to conceive. Beloved, the Father and the Son are one God. The same in nature, essence, attributes and character, equal in power and in glory. They share an essential oneness of being, right? And here, of course, what do we have? We have the doctrine, the mystery of the Trinity, right? The Holy Spirit not mentioned here, but we understand the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. There's but one God. Yet within the oneness of the Godhead, there are three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in particular here, we read of the Father and of the Word and in their perfect satisfaction in one another. J.C. Ryle said it like this. He said, the Father and the Word, though two persons, are joined by an ineffable, that means indescribable or inexpressible, union. Where God the Father was from all eternity, there also was the Word, even God the Son. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal, and their Godhead one. This is a great mystery. Happy is he who can receive it as a little child without attempting to explain it. He's not merely a created angel or being inferior to God the Father and invested by Him with power to redeem sinners. He is nothing less than perfect God, equal to the Father as touching His Godhead, right? And so we've got this picture that, 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 that John draws for us, right? This, this, this picture that it's hard to imagine in our minds like what it was like before the beginning, right? But he gives us this picture. This picture that tells us that the Word was in the beginning, that this Word is God, and that that Word was with God. He was face to face with God. One heart, one mind, perfect love, perfect communion, right? Taking counsel together and delighted, fully delighted. And so some people ask, well, what were the Father and the Son doing before creation? What were they doing when they were proston theon? What was taking place? Back in eternity. I mentioned to the Christmas choir on Wednesday that, that one time a skeptic cynically asked Augustine that question. And Augustine's reply was, creating hell for curious souls. But still, if you ask that sincerely, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I'd, I'd like to know that. Wouldn't you like to know that? Like, what exactly was going on? What did the father and son do when they were post on theon, when they were face to face? Well, we can't know everything. There's no way for us to know. That hasn't been given to us. But among whatever other things the Father and the Son were doing, the God and the Word were doing, beloved, one of the things that they were doing is that they were making an inner Trinitarian covenant, the eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, a covenant that is presented primarily in terms of the promises of the Father to the Son and the obligations of the Son to the Father. What theologians call the pactum salutis. I want you to write that down. That's not an obscure theological... Well, it is a little obscure. It shouldn't be. 
It's a theological term, pactum salutis, that refers to the eternal covenant of redemption that was struck amongst the members of the Godhead before creation or time existed. That dictated the entire creation and everything that is taking place, everything that is taking place in time, ordained and decreed in eternity past. It was a a, a covenant that was struck amongst the members of the Godhead in the eternal councils of the Trinity, the triune God covenanting together in a plan that involved the salvation of those sinful beings who would belong to Christ and the glory that Christ would receive for his redemptive work. In this pactum salutis, the Father chose a certain number of the human race for salvation and gave them to his Son as a love gift to be their guardian and their savior and their redeemer and their mediator. And with the pledge that the Holy Spirit would bring all who had been given to Christ to receive the benefits of salvation and with the promise that in accomplishing the eternal salvation of his people, that the son would be exalted with the name that is above every other name. The triune God had a plan involving the mutual covenant of Father, Son, and Spirit to save a people who had yet to be created and to glorify Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, in his unique way, puts it like this. He says, The Eternal Father held a solemn council with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thus spoke the Father, I will that those whom I have chosen be saved. Then said the Son, My Father... I am ready to bleed and die that thy justice might not suffer and that thy purpose might be executed. I will, said the Holy Spirit, that those whom the Son redeems with blood shall be called by grace, shall be quickened, shall be preserved, shall be sanctified and perfected and brought safely home. Then was the covenant written, signed and sealed and ratified between the sacred three. The Father gave the Son, the Son gave Himself, and the Spirit promises all His influence, all His presence to all the chosen. Then did the Father give to the Son the persons of His elect, then did the Son give Himself to the elect, and take them into union with Himself, and then did the Spirit in covenant vow that those chosen ones would surely be brought safe home at last. Before creation, before the beginning of time, when Father and Son were prostone theon, in the presence of the Spirit of God, the covenant of redemption was enjoined by the members of the Trinity. Though from our limited perspective, this covenant's beyond our ability to fully comprehend. The Scriptures repeatedly attest to it. Like the Trinity, we don't find the word, like we don't find the word Trinity in Scripture. We don't find the phrase covenant redemption as such in the Word of God. But the inescapable evidence of this covenant is everywhere. For instance, Paul speaks of it in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And you might even miss it if you're not paying attention. He says there, Paul, a servant of God. Just listen quick, just listen closely. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Did you catch that? Did you catch it? What should stick out? 
promised when? Before the ages began. So here's Paul talking about this promise of eternal life to the elect before the ages began. So here's my question. To whom did God make this promise if we didn't yet exist? To whom did God make this promise before the ages began? But when I think it was created, who does God make this promise to? Well, the answer can only be that he made the promise to whom? To his son, for the sake of his elect. But that's not all. Paul describes a plan, the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9. He speaks, the Bible speaks of God's plan as the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has this plan, a plan. God is not just winging it. He's not just kind of like, you know, just doing things and responding and reacting, right? He's not the God of, of, of open theism who's just learning every day new things and figuring out how to make his plan move forward. No, no, no. He's the God who decrees and whose decree cannot be overturned. And he's got a plan, a plan that he conceived in his incomparable wisdom, which he's bringing to pass by his unconquerable power. And the grand plan of God is to gather all of the creation under the glorious headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. The external word who is God, bringing everything under his absolute authority and rule, uniting everything under him, explaining everything in terms of him, defining everything in relationship to him, thereby magnifying Christ's infinite and incalculable worth according to the eternal counsel of God. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John closely, closely, I I, want to emphasize closely, if you read the Gospel of John closely, you see that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of his earthly ministry in terms of an already determined agreement or plan or covenant with the Father. When he describes himself as being sent on a mission or of a people having been given to him by the Father, past tense, or coming not on his own accord, but at the Father's direction, on uh, speaking of his mission to glorify the Father. Let me just give you a few examples. There are, I, I print off, I think, four pages of examples of just verses from the Gospel of John. I'm just going to give you a few, okay? I'm just going to give you a few. For instance, Jesus says in John chapter 5 and verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Well, when? When? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Sent Christ on a specific mission with a specific purpose. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, John six thirty eight and 39, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He says in John chapter 7, verse 28, I have not come on my own accord. I have not come on my own accord. Then he says in 
the beginning of John 17, and really all of John 17, the, the, the high priestly prayer reflects this concept of a covenant agreement, a reason he's come. We read these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. What hour? Well, the hour that was predetermined before the foundation of the world. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth having... How did I glorify? How did Christ glorify him? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. You read the Gospel of John, multiplied texts speak to this eternal covenant struck by the persons of the Trinity before the ages began for the sake of those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Now, here's the thing. With every covenant, right? There's two sides to every covenant. With every covenant, there are terms and there are conditions. There are requirements and then there are rewards. There are obligations and there are promises, right? And it's no different here. In Psalm 40, for instance, when a messianic psalm that's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10, we read these words. Jesus saying, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Well, what was that will? What, was, what were the requirements and the obligations given to Christ by the Father before the foundation of the world? What was the Father's will for the Son? And what were the Father's promises given not at the manger? Okay, not at the manger. And not when Jesus was baptized. But before the incarnation, in fact, the very things that required his incarnation, what were, what were the requirements laid upon Christ and what were the promises of the Father? Well, according to the scripture, as it regards Christ and the obligations that were laid upon him in the pactum salutis, it was the will of the Father that the Son should become a man, right? That he should take to himself human nature by being born of a woman as a real man, like us in every way, with the same infirmities, right? Yet without what? Sin. That he would do it willingly, right? And we know he did. Paul tells us, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. It was laid upon Christ that he should place himself under the law, voluntarily undertaking to fulfill all righteousness for us by obeying the law perfectly for our sake, doing it as our substitute, perfectly fulfilling the law's demands on our behalf as the second Adam, like we saw in Romans 5, right? It was laid upon Christ that he must speak the truth of God, that he must declare the gospel, that he must proclaim that which the Father had given him to speak, speaking only as the Father had taught him. Which John testifies, the Gospel of John testifies is exactly what he did. It was laid upon Christ that he must do the works 
that the Father gave him to do, right? Those miraculous works that point to the glory of God. It was laid upon him that he must bear our sins as if they were his own, becoming a curse for us, offering himself as our propitiatory sacrifice, paying the debt of our sins and bearing them away from us forever. It's that that involved his entire life of humiliation and sorrow and suffering and his death upon the cross. It was laid upon Christ that he must lay down his life and then take it up again in accordance with the charge that he'd received from his father. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Where did he get that authority? Well, this charge I have received from my Father. These are the obligations laid upon Christ. And likewise, the promise of the Father, according to the Scriptures, was that He would prepare for His Son a body that would be a fit tabernacle for Him, uncontaminated with sin, right? That's why the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10.5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. Just as the angel told angel Gabriel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Father promised that He would endow the Son with all the necessary gifts and graces for the performance of His mission and give Him the Spirit without measure. He promised that He would ever be at the Son's right hand to support and comfort Him in the darkest hours of His conflict with the powers of darkness and that He would ultimately triumph over Satan and establish the kingdom of God. We see this reflected in the servant song of Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1 where it says, Behold my servant, speaking of Christ, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon Him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that, and all that comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you, the servant, Christ, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The father promised the son that he would deliver him from the power of death and exalt him to his own right hand. But David says concerning him, Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, 
or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. The Father promised to draw all to whom he had given, all whom he had given to Christ in eternity to faith, to saving faith in him, so that, so that none should be lost of all those who have been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. He promised Christ that he would be given authority to send the Holy Spirit to form, instruct, guide, and protect his church. He promised him that he would save everyone that had been named from every tribe, nation, and tongue, a multitude so great that no one can number so that Christ would see and be satisfied with his labors, Isaiah 53. He promised that the Father would commit to him all power in heaven and on earth for the government of the world and for his church, having seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and in dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's why Jesus could say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. And last, the Father promised that he would give to Christ the glory that belongs to him as the only Savior and Lord. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those were the terms of the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. The eternal word did not decide on his own to come to this planet for our redemption. He was sent here. In the pactum salutis, the son came to do the father's bidding and he came willingly. The father did not strip the son of his rights to his eternal glory. He did not coerce the son to be our redeemer. The son agreed to lay aside his rights to his glory temporarily for the sake of our salvation. And the father promised to him a church, a people for his own possession who would forever praise the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light commune with him, to worship and adore him forever as Lord. By divine covenant, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ was chosen for salvation, chosen for the work of salvation. Just as Peter says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. In fact, another way to say that is this. Jesus was chosen as the mediator between God and man, the savior of sinners, the sacrificial lamb before the foundation of the world, before anything was spoken into existence, before the world was created, before matter existed, before the laws of physics, before Adam and Eve, before the Garden of Eden, because God determined to save men and women and children out of every nation, tribe, and tongue and determined that Christ would be the redeemer of his chosen people. And Jesus said yes. For the foundation of the world, Jesus said yes to stand in the place of judgment for the life of his people in fulfillment of the covenant of redemption in which the Father gave the elect to his Son and promised him the reward of his faithfulness. For the foundation of the world, they were prostontheon, Father and Son. 
The councils of eternity, the covenant of redemption was struck amongst the persons of the Trinity, shrouded in mystery to be sure, but the evidence is everywhere in the scripture. Before time was, when Christ was face to face with God, the Father and the Son conceived a plan, a covenant of redemption. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson and Derek Thomas, he who was in the beginning was face to face with God. He has come in order to be face to face with us so that we may live face to face with him. Don Kistler summarizes this really well. He says, this covenant reveals a love that's unparalleled. It exceeds all comprehension. That's what he says. He says, think of what a blessing it is that you and I have been considered and known in this covenant. That this covenant would even be struck. To have been given by the Father to the Son. Think of what a blessing it is that you and I have had our names written by the Son in His book of life. Think of what a blessing it is that you and I have been the objects of the eternal mutual delight of the Father and the Son to save us. Neither God nor Christ was moved by necessity or compulsion. That's the big thing we've got to see. Just let me start. That's the big thing that we've got to see here. The whole point of saying, look, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They were proston theon, and they were absolutely satisfied in one another. That's the thing we've got to understand that makes this, this, this covenant so glorious. It wasn't by necessity or compulsion. Instead, it was by eternal love and volition. He goes on to say, Jeremiah 31, 3 states, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Love moved the Father. And love moved the Son. It's a covenant of love between those whose love proceeds from within themselves. By virtue of this covenant, the Lord Jesus is the executor of the salvation of the elect. The Father has given us into His hand and entrusts us to Him. The Son in love has accepted us and committed Himself not to lose one of us, but to raise us up again at the last day. Christ is omnipotent, faithful, loving, immutable, and possesses everything necessary for our salvation. The implications for this, for the believer, are staggering. The salvation of the elect is then immovably sure. And that's because both parties, the Father and the Son, are fully and mutually satisfied concerning the salvation of the elect and the finished work of Christ in fulfilling the conditions of the covenant. What took place when they were face to face? Father and the Word, God and the Word in eternity past. We can't know everything. But one thing we do know is that the Father and the Son, along with the Holy Spirit, were covenanting together for the greatest display of Christ's glory and for our redemption. The evidence is unmistakable. And because God the Father must make good on His promise to His Son, our salvation in Him is absolutely secure as the covenant between Father and Son, the trust between Father and Son is. That ought to blow your mind. And it's in light of this covenant that we've got to understand the words of verses 3 through 5, right? He tells us that this world is his. John does, right? Look at verse 3. He says, All things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or was things just, were things just made willy-nilly? Were things just thrown out there, and we're just going to take a shot at it? You know, like little kids that are learning art for the first time, and they don't know how to mix colors, and they just kind of throw everything on a, on a canvas, and then you look at it, and because you're the parent, you're supposed to be like, oh, that's beautiful, when it's not. Creation just happened? No. Creation happened according to Pactum Salutis. Everything was made 
for one purpose. For the carrying out of the pactum salutis. Look, Christ, what he's saying here is this, is that the word is the agent of creation, right? That this world is, is his and everything in it. But even more than that, even more than that, what he's saying is this. Paul says this of Jesus later on. He says, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, here's what he's saying. Not, he, not only was the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord Jesus Christ the agent of creation, but you know what? He's the goal of creation too. And he's the one who holds creation together, creator and sustainer, and he's the final goal of it all. The ground of reality that scientists are furiously searching to find, what's the, what's the unifying ground of reality, right? The unifying principle at the heart of all existence. What's the unifying theory? That principle is not matter. It's not energy. It's not physics. It's not science. It's not some impersonal force. It's not chance. The eternal ground of reality is a person. And that person is the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ex- he is the unifying explanation of the universe. Why things are. Why they progress as they have. Right? Some people argue with that. They want to ask themselves, like, why, why did God create the world like he did? Why did Jesus create everything as he did? Well, let's think about that for a second. First of all, it's not our right to ask God that question. Right? But for a moment, let's just be stupid enough to entertain it. Why did Christ create as he did? Think about this. You know, he could have created a world without man, right? Right? And we would have never existed. And therefore, we would have never known God, right? He could have created a world with man, but without sin. And we would know him only in a one-dimensional manner, right? As creator. He could have created a world with man and with sin, but without salvation. And therefore, we would know him what? As creator and his judge. Or he could have created a world with men, with sin, and with one Savior. And thereby we might know God as creator and judge and loving, gracious, merciful Savior, according to the pactum salutis. Why did he create things as he did? Because of the eternal covenant. Between the Father and the Son. He's the unifying explanation of why the universe is as it is. He's the one who sustains it. He's the one for whom the universe exists. He's the one who will renovate all things. And He's the one in whom we find our true identity. And why do I say that? It's because of what John says next. That He's the source of light and life. Look at verse 4. He said, in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. What does John mean by that? Well, we know all physical life comes from Christ, but that's not John's point here. That's not, that's not his chief point here. What John has in mind is, is spiritual life, eternal life, true life, right? All real life, all spiritual life, all eternal life finds its source in the Word of God, in Jesus Christ. And that in accordance with what? The covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis. In fact, John is even more explicit in what he writes in, in his first epistle when he says first in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is found where? In his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. 
Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then John goes on to say that the life, the life of Christ, was the light of men. He's that life that that brings light. He's that life that brings spiritual understanding. He's that light that brings truth to the heart of man. He's the one that makes men who have been blinded by their own sinful rebellion against God, who don't know reality from imagination, who don't know truth from falsehood. He's the one who brings the light of God's truth, the light of, of, of the divine gospel, the divine plan to save sinners through his incarnation and his righteous life and his saving death and his resurrection to darken minds of men and women who are trapped in sin. He's the one that shines the light. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't overcome it. It does not, has not overcome it. Christ's light can't be covered up. His truth, who he is. It shines in the darkness of our world and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness tries to take it down. It, it tries to tackle it and overcome it and quench it to extinguish it or defeat it or keep it hidden. But it can't. The darkness can't prevail over the light of Christ. Jesus will, will, will unfailingly pierce the darkness. He will, in fact, save those given him by the Father. He will accomplish, he has accomplished his part in the pactum salutis and his people will be saved. He shines in the darkness and he draws his people to himself and his people are irresistibly drawn because the covenant has been made and it can't be undone. And this present darkness can't prevail. Where Christ shines, the light of his glory, darkness shatters. Darkness, I mean scatters. He's pierced the darkness of our souls or we would have forever remained in darkness. Praise God that this death, the darkness of sin is not a match for the light of Christ, for the eternal word of God. In these five verses, John has given us a massive vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, a massive vision of time before creation. This picture of the word of God that goes back far beyond a babe in a manger or baptism at the River Jordan. So how do we leave this text this morning? How should we respond to it? Beloved, I just want to give you a few things. I think the first thing is this. We ought to just sit back and wonder a little bit. We ought to be amazed. I think we think too lightly sometimes on the things that are of greatest significance. I think rather than really think about the wonders of the things that we talked about this morning, sometimes we just kind of like, blip back past the mystery and the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that He is eternal, the Word, that He's glorious beyond measure in His own purpose, that He would covenant, not out of any need, but that He would covenant to lay aside His glory and become like us, that He would undertake to save a people given to Him by His Father, that He would do so at a great cost to Himself, not out of obligation, but out of love, ought to astound us and make us revel all the more in Him. What would make Him do that? Like seriously, that's when I've got to sit back and say, there is a mystery about the Lord Jesus Christ that to me is inexhaustible. Really. The more I think I know about Him, the more I realize there is far more I do not know. I do not know. There's a mystery about him that there, there are things about him I, I, I have no ability to know. That's why heaven will be heaven. Because we'll come to know Christ more and more. 
I mean, look, that's not to say that we cannot know him or know aspects of his being and his person with certainty. We can, but we do not have a full and exhaustive knowledge of Christ. As Christians, we know him, but there's always more to know. There's always more to experience, right? And because that's true, when I think about this text, it ought to deepen and inflame my worship. It ought to deepen and inflame your worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I mean, if Jesus Christ is the word of God, and he is, then the most important thing that's ever happened in human history is what? It's that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. That he entered the creation that he made. That he dwelt among us and accomplished all that the Bible says he did. Jesus came in the flesh to pierce the darkness for the salvation of sinners. That stands out as a deed of incomprehensible love and infinite condescension. It's not easy for us to grasp. And yet his great love for us, in his great love for us, for his church, his perfect obedience to the Father's will in order to save us and rescue us from the darkness, that ought to hold our hearts in reverential awe at the majesty of Christ and should be the driving force of our lives until we see him prostonteon. Hear me when I say this. I don't, we do not rightly worship Christ. We do not w- rightly worship Christ unless we worship him as very God of very God, as the word, man, as the eternal God. Yes, Christ took on human flesh. And for that reason, he's able to be our representative before God and to be the mediator between God and man. But it's because he is God. It's because he is the eternal word that his saving work on our behalf, his atoning death, the shedding of his blood for our forgiveness of sins has infinite value to pay our infinite debt before God and secure our salvation forever. It's because the eternal word said yes to the obligations of the covenant of the pactum salutis. And did everything necessary for our salvation. Spurgeon, again, in his characteristically pithy way, says, He that hung upon the cross was the maker of all worlds. He that came as an infant for our sake was the infinite. How low he stooped. How high he must have been that he could stoop so low. Moreover, in considering the pactum salutis, this eternal covenant of redemption between the members of the Trinity, we ought to be deeply encouraged. It's appeared in Thomas Brooks who said this. He put it plainly. He said, the covenant of redemption betwixt God and Christ. He sounds like a Puritan, right? Betwixt. The covenant of redemption betwixt God and Christ secures the covenant of grace betwixt God and believers. For what God promises to us, he did before the foundation of the world, promised to Jesus Christ in Titus 1-2. And therefore... If God the Father should not make good his promises to his saints, he would not make good his promises to his dearest son, which, for any to imagine, would be the highest blasphemy. And then last, for those that are in this room that are not Christians, you never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you never received forgiveness of your sins through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would say this to you. And I say this to you in love. I would say to you that it's time you took the Lord Jesus Christ seriously. I'm going to say that again. It is time you took the Lord Jesus Christ seriously. This text this morning ought to leave you with a very real desire to know Christ in the way that the scriptures describe him. Not according to conjectures, not according to theories and philosophies of man. Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God. He is God. 
He is the creator of everything. He is the source of everything that can be called life and light. He is the savior of sinners and he's the judge of every human soul. He is the one that has entered into time and history to do for his people what his people could not do for themselves. He came to deal with sin and condemnation. He came to deal with rebellion and the guilt of that rebellion and God's wrath against sinners. He's come to live a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. He earned perfect righteousness for all who believe before the face of God. And he has died paying the debt of sin, suffering the wrath of God in the place of all who will repent and believe in him. And he is the only way of salvation. He has been designated by God Almighty, God the Father, as the only redeemer of sinners. He has been foreknown before the foundation of the world, foreloved by God, chosen by God to be the redeemer of sinners before the foundation of the world. And he has been made manifest in time. And he is the only one that can save you from the wrath that you deserve. I'm pleading with you this morning that you would bow before him today that you would confess him as your God and as your maker and as your savior and as your Lord. That you would come to him, to the one who is able to save to the uttermost all that come to the Father by him. He that was face to face with God became face to face with us that we may live face to face with him. He's your only hope. But he's the only hope you need. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful to you for the words of this text and for the mystery of the Pactum Salutis and for the wonder that everything has been made and Christ has come in light of this eternal covenant that has been struck amongst the Trinity. It's hard to even know how to talk about that. You, one God, three persons, equal in power and glory. I thank you for it and I thank you for the revelation of it throughout Scripture. I pray, Lord, today that our minds and our hearts might be more fully amazed by who Christ is. I pray, Father God, that the the small and the confining understandings of Christ that we may have had have been exploded by this text. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people that would revel in the person of Jesus, that we would be a people, Lord God, that would worship Christ rightly in full understanding, at least as best we can, of all that Christ is and all that he has done. And Father God, that we would stand in awe and in amazement of Jesus, of the word of God, of the word made flesh. Lord, move in our midst. Draw our hearts out in the way that they need to be. Move in our midst in a way that gives you glory and honor. I pray, Father, as we meditate on these words, you would edify the saints. Lord God, you would convict and draw to Christ those who are not yet saved. That they might trust in Jesus alone. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor for all things. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.